Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people going through different challenges and how they overcome them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. If you love this conversation, we'd love you to like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero story. This conversation is with an incredible man by the name of Paul Merger. He tells a very moving, harrowing, frightening story of the, the role that he's played in effectively saving children and young women from the sex trade. This is not a conversation for people who are young or, or afraid to hear some things that are quite raw, so beware of that. But there's so much also in this that everyday Australians should be aware of because this happens every day and people like Paul are fighting on the front line to save these young women, to give them hope, to give them a life again. He's been in some of the darkest places on the face of the planet. He's been driven to do this uh, from a place deep inside of him because he wants to end the abuse that's handed out to these kids that are trapped in places without hope. And he wants them to be able to rediscover their destiny of a fruitful life and give them choices again. Formerly an accountant with KPMG, he's worked in couple of Australia's largest charities and then he joined the Destiny Rescue Group back in 2019. What an amazing man, an incredible story. Uh, again, caution, beware that this one is really, really special. Thank you, Paul, for bringing light to such an important thing and for everything that you're doing. Enjoy this story with Paul Murgard. Well, here we are. It is another episode of Kintsugi Heroes, and I'm here with Paul Murgard. Paul, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing fantastic, and yeah, super excited to be able to uh, share with you today. Absolute privilege and honour to be here. Oh, thank you. Like, it feels so good to, to me every time. Trust me. Like, every time someone comes along and shares their story, I feel honoured and blessed to be able to, you know, hold the space for them. It's just beautiful what what comes. So. Thank you for coming along and sharing your story. Well, let's get started. This is about you, not about me. I'm going to hand over the mic to you and ask you to take us back to the beginning of your story. Yeah, thanks so much, Evelyn. And I guess my story, particularly in the work that I'm involved in today, really goes back to the early 2000s. And I had become aware of the issue of human trafficking and uh, slavery. Uh, particularly through the movie Amazing Grace that came out in around about, I think, 2001, I think it was, that Amazing Grace came out. And, and I got involved in starting to learn about the issue of human trafficking and modern-day slavery, which I really hadn't been aware of up until uh, that movie came out. And as things started to unfold over these next couple of years, I became more and more aware of the issue of human trafficking. I got involved in some lobbying and and some... Uh, yeah, just advocacy work around it. But then I really felt like I needed to do something to go deeper. And so in around about 2006, I went um, and took a week's holiday and went with a friend of mine to Mumbai, India. 
And we spent a week in Mumbai uh, working with an organization or spending time with an organization that was rescuing women from uh, slavery in Mumbai. And we went through the red light district of Mumbai. We're spending every day in that particular part of Mumbai. Uh, over 6,000 women were being used as slaves in that particular red light district. And I remember meeting a woman called Anita. And Anita is someone that I probably think about now on a daily basis. And the Anita that I met, she was in her late 20s at that point in time, but she recounted to me what happened to her as a nine-year-old girl. You see, for Anita, when she was nine years old, she was working in a garment factory in Nepal. She wasn't at school. She wasn't having a childhood. She was working. She was at work because her family were incredibly poor and she was in a, found herself in a situation where she didn't have any choice but to go and work and work in a garment factory, only earning a, a, you know, one or two dollars a day which she would be able to take back so her family could eat and survive. And Anita told me how that one day a, a lady came in to the factory and said to her and her friend, hey, if you come with me, I'll get you a better job working in a better place. You can earn more money and you'll be able to support your family in a much better way. And so as a nine-year-old girl, Anita and a friend believed the lady that came into the factory and decided to go with her. And then, you know, a few days went by and she suddenly finds herself in the sweat and the smell and the heat and humidity of Mumbai's red light district. And Anita accounted to me how those first couple of weeks went by. And on this podcast, I'm not going to go into that in detail because it's just way too graphic and way too confrontational. But let me just say, she was forced to do things that a nine-year-old girl should never be forced to do. And this became Anita's life. She recounted for me in the most shocking of, of detail and, you know, it was just this experience that really gripped me of hearing this story of what she had to do anywhere between five and 15 times a day where she would have to um, go and do whatever a man wanted her to do for almost no money whatsoever. And it literally took my breath away to hear Anita's story. Now, she had to do that sort of work for 10 to 15 years. And when I met her, she was finally free and she had come out of working in the sex trade in Mumbai's red light district and, and was finally helping other women look after the kids that they had. She had her own two children at this point in time and they had thankfully got an education and were, were going through through school and were free. And Anita had found uh, restoration and redemption in the most incredible way. I have to say, I've never met anyone that more embodied what redemption looked like than someone like Anita. And each time I've been back and I've met Anita, I've been blown away by her courage, her grace, the ability for her to overcome the most incredible trauma that has ever been put before her, and then to see her flourishing in an environment that she was in. But the thing that got me on that particular trip, I finished a week in Mumbai. I had met a whole heap of women that were being abused, um, that had been forced, that were trapped. Some of them were in debt bondage. 
Some of them were just purely forced uh, as young children to be working in the child sex trade. Um, and I got to Mumbai's airport. I got to the airport in Mumbai to fly home. And when I went in to check in at, with Qantas, um, the Qantas um, check-in agent said to me, we're really sorry, Mr. Mergard, your, your flight is going to be delayed by about four hours. And, um, and I, was, like, I was just exhausted. I, my wife was pregnant at the time with my first son. I was desperate to get home and hold her because I had I was actually pretty traumatized because of what I had seen and experienced the stories that I'd heard, hearing Anita talk about her initiation, hearing just in graphic detail what kids go through when they're lured into the, the sex trade and or forced into the sex trade because it's not choice. They don't get there by choice. But then I went and sat and as I sat sort of the checkout counter at at uh, Mumbai's airport, the Qantas staff member said to me, but, you know, your flight's delayed four hours, but we've upgraded you to business class. And I'm like, well, who got on the lottery? I'm like, thankfully something, you know, something nice that's going to come this week, but I get to fly home in, uh, in comfort. I, I don't know why Qantas decided to upgrade me, but I think there was a story unfolding for me, which I'll share with you in a second, that um, really pointed out for me the stark contrast of our world because I went through and I sat in the lounge um, that Qantas gave me a pass to and I'm sitting there and I put my headphones on and I was listening to music and I was trying to process the week that I had and I was journaling and as I was journaling sitting in the, the lounge in the airport there were these two ladies that sat next to me. Um, the lounge was packed. I think, obviously, there was a delayed flight and they must have been accommodating a whole heap of people in there and trying to make up for this flight big play. And I wasn't listening to their conversation, but just over the noise of my music that was playing, I heard these two ladies that came from the eastern beaches of Sydney, both dressed in white linen. They had bags, like shopping bags, with them where they had been clearly staying at the Taj Hotel in Mumbai. And and if any of you remember, any of you listeners remember from the terrorist attacks back in, um, uh, was it 2011 or something like that, um, when Mumbai had those seven attacks, one of those was at the Taj Hotel. And, and the movie that, there's been a movie filmed on that, um, Mumbai terror attacks, and, and most of that movie was filmed in the Taj Hotel. So it's one of the, the most expensive hotels that you can see in Mumbai. And that's where these ladies have been staying. And I overhear their conversation talking about men that they had been hooking up with or men that they had been trying to date with them and whatnot. And one of these ladies says in her very posh accent, I suppose, she, used, she said the words, I'm so glad we have prostitutes because it means a man can have sex without having to have it with me. And I sat in that lounge in Mumbai's airport almost in tears and anger and outrage going, what did you just say? And so I listened into their conversation a little bit more. And here were these two women talking about what they had, what they'd been doing in India. They'd been shopping and they'd been to all the, the different spas, they'd been and seen the tourist sites and whatnot. But then they're talking about the, the way they're viewing men, the way that 
their relationships were obviously unfolding, not in a great way in, back in Sydney. But then so thankful that there are prostitutes that exist so men can have sex so they didn't have to have, to have sex with them. And I, and I sat there and I wanted to rip my headphones off and say to them, have you got any idea? Because I had been in and out of brothels that week. And I had seen what young girls had gone through. And these weren't girls that had chosen to be prostitutes. You see, children don't get a choice to be prostitutes because children should never have to make that choice. But here were women that were so glad that there were other people willing to do that. And then it came time to board our plane and you wouldn't believe who I was sitting next to. For the 12-hour flight home to Mumbai, I was supposed to be in the back of the plane sitting in economy um, back where most of us sit next to the toilets and whatever. And here I was upgraded to business class and sitting next to this woman that was so glad that we had prostitutes in a white linen. We got on the plane and she pulled out all the hand creams and started putting hand cream on her. And I just, I'm like, what am I going to do for the next 12 hours? Now, I was, thankfully, her friend came over to me and asked whether I'd swap seats with her because they weren't sitting next to each other. And I felt like I had this out. But it, you know what? It just, it was a moment in my life where I had come face to face with the most horrific things that a girl could ever have to do, not by choice, because she was forced to at the age of nine. And then also realized this incredible disconnect into Australian society that saw, I don't know, that there was just something about that story of going, I can't believe that someone would think this was okay because it's not okay. And so for me, really progress this journey of going, I need to do something about this issue. And it, it's become my life's work, I guess, in many ways. And, and over the, the, the next sort of 10 years or so, I spent uh, time working in, in different fields in international aid and development, trying to alleviate poverty uh, around the world. And then at the start of, uh, oh, sorry, towards the end of 2019, uh, we had moved to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, and and I was always aware of the organisation of Destiny Rescue, and knowing that I had a real heart commitment and I felt a real sense of calling and a sense of life's purpose to do something around the issue of human trafficking. When I moved to the Sunshine Coast, I kind of had in the back of my mind, it would be interesting if one day Destiny Rescue wanted to talk with me about coming and working with them, but I wasn't probably pursuing that because, you know, in, in the ups and downs of of kind of 20, uh, 2009 through to 2019, I had these ups and down moments of wanting to really engage in the issue of human trafficking, but then those doors seemed to close on me. And, and I was working for an organization for a period of time and, and they didn't really want to engage in the issue of human trafficking. And I felt like I had to lay that down. And then 2019 turns, comes around and I was approached by Destiny Rescue and asked whether I'd come on board as a 2IC. Um, and then the view with the view to becoming CEO after, um, or because the CEO at the time was looking to retire. And again, I remember going to this meeting and, and they were talking about what it would look like to come and work for the organization. And, and I went through this process of going, do I want to do something about this issue of human trafficking and child sexual exploitation? And I had grieved probably laying down the story of Anita. And having to put that to the side because I didn't feel like I was able to express my voice in that. 
And then to have this opportunity to come into an organization that was working at the forefront of child exploitation and human trafficking. And I guess uh, an opportunity to really use my voice to speak about that. And look, you know, long story short, I guess I said yes to that opportunity and started working for, for Destiny Rescue and really started to engage on a, on a way that I probably never imagined I would deal with. And, um, and so for the last three and a, a bit years, I have been working to ensure the freedom of thousands of children. And, uh, you know, Destiny Rescue over the last 10 years, or a bit over 10 years actually, we have rescued over 11,500 people from child sexual exploitation and human trafficking. And we work undercover. We go into bars and brothels and establishments right around the world. We, In some of our countries, we go into slum communities and find children that are being exploited just so they can put food on the table. But at the start of um, 2022, as soon as international borders opened, I was back into Thailand. And I was in a bar in northern Thailand. And I went... Uh, and, and you know, often when what we do, we're going into bars and we go in undercover. We're pretending to be customers in many different ways to identify where children might be being exploited in situations. And we try to uncover their stories and, and, and you know, identify whether these are children that are underage. And then we work with police to get them to freedom. And I remember on a Sunday night, it was a really hot, sweaty night up in northern Thailand. And I went into this bar and I started chatting with this girl that looked like she was probably 17 years old. And I asked a question that I normally ask in those early stages. You're getting to know people. You're often using Google Translate. You're trying to communicate to them. They're speaking Thai. You're speaking English. But I wrote on my app, um, why are you here? And she said back to me in broken English words that absolutely shocked me to my core. My simple question was, why are you here? And she said to me, I'm here because this is my destiny. And I looked at her and I went, you're what? And she's like, this is my destiny. And I wanted to reach across the table and say to her, I work for an organization called Destiny Rescue, that literally we were started in 2001. Because our founder heard someone uh, in, in Thailand talk about their innocence being stolen and their destiny being stolen. We wanted to set about rescuing kids' destinies. And I wanted to reach across the table and tell her of the organization that I work for, but that would have blown my cover and it would have um, really compromised the operation that we were doing. But I was staggered that here was a girl that I was talking to in northern Thailand all these years later that wasn't that dissimilar to Anita and was working in a bar to do whatever a man wanted her to do simply because she felt it was her destiny. That's, I guess, what we're committed to as an organisation, what I'm committed to of going, it is not a child's destiny to work in the places that they end up in. Because what parent ever has a child and dreams of the day that their child would work up, would work as a plaything for a man to do whatever a man wanted her to do. Or a woman, actually, for that matter. It's not always men that are exploiting children. It's often women involved in that process as well. You know, when a, when a parent has a child, you dream of the day that they become a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or a lawyer or a, or a, a business person. They start a business. Um, if you're a parent that is living in extreme poverty, 
you're hoping that your child might be a superannuation fund. You're hoping that your child might be your, the, the one that helps you get out of poverty. No parent ever dreams of the day. I don't believe there's ever a parent on the face of this planet that has a child and dreams that that child's destiny is to be a plaything in the darkest corners of, the, of our planet just to give someone a couple of minutes of fun and enjoyment. That's never someone's destiny. That's never someone's plan. But unfortunately, I've come to realize that that's what a lot of kids across the world find, that the destiny that they have been forced to endure is one of exploitation. We spend our, our days, our, our weeks, our months trying to ensure the freedom for children right across the globe. You know, as we go through and, and do this work, I find incredible joy, incredible satisfaction, incredible triumph over devastation. And um, I'm, you know, I'm super excited that last year we were able to rescue 3,144 people from sexual exploitation and human trafficking, and we're helping them stay free. We have um, somewhere between 80 to 100% of the victims that we rescue are free two years after we rescue them. There's a small percentage of them that, that are traffic, or uh, sorry, a small percentage of them that might go back into the work, but that percentage is only in the generally five or 6%. There's another small percentage that we lose track of, and we're just not sure where they end up because they might have changed phone numbers or they might have moved to another city. And, you know, that's quite common with a fairly transient population. But as an organization, we're committed to getting them free and to keeping them free. And so we then look towards providing uh, vocational skills training, getting them back into education. If they're really young, so if they're generally between, well, under the age of 15, we'll get the child back into schooling and we'll ensure that we find someone in their family, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, an auntie, an uncle, that we can help either start a small business or or get a job where they're earning enough income to support the family. And it's amazing the transformation that you see in someone's life when they find freedom, when they find the opportunity to get out of the hellhole that they've been in, and suddenly they've got opportunity. You see, I often find when there is poverty, poverty says to a child, you have no potential. Poverty says to a child, you have no opportunity. But when people that come along that are able to unlock that potential or unlock the opportunity for a child, they rise and they rise above and they overcome. And I'm so blown away all the time about how I find kids that had the most adverse situations thrown at them suddenly become kids who are free, who can overcome who have known how to overcome adversity and they become people like Anita that I met all those years ago that understand redemption, that understand the power of a second chance, that understand um, no matter what the world throws at you, you are someone who, are, who is powerful and who can overcome adversity. And we're in the business of doing that. We're in the business of saying to a child that you can dream. You know, I've, I've, I remember meeting a child once and I said to them, what are your dreams? And the child said to me, oh, Paul, don't ask me to dream because my dreams will never come true. And I sat there with that child and I said, no, my friend, you can dream. Your dreams can come true and we're committed to making your dreams come true. 
Because when I see people stand up and make a difference, where I see people make their life count to somebody else's, I find that we can help kids rewrite their story. I find that we can go and say to children, your story is one of potential and one of hope. Your story is one of triumph and overcoming. Your story is changing the generation around you. It's not just changing your story, but it's changing the story of your kids and the kids to come after you. And if only we can mobilize a generation of people to make a stand for something that is significant and that is that is a stand for justice and righteousness, a stand for freedom and not for oppression, we can have incredible impact on the life of people around us. And I see that happening day in, day out in the work that we are doing. Uh, we're rescuing on average six or seven people every single day. That six or seven people that were tra- trapped in bondage and slavery and exploitation that suddenly find they're free, that suddenly find they have choice, that suddenly find they have agency over their bodies, that suddenly discover that they can say no to someone that comes along and wants to exploit them. And it is inspiring. It is inspiring to be part of work like this. I remember on another time, I was in Thailand last year on one of our undercover operations. I went in to an establishment and we had identified nine children working in that between the ages of 14 and 17. And they were working in that roadside bar, being forced to do things that no child should ever have to even contemplate. And as we're sitting in this bar and we, you know, again, we're going in undercover, we're trying to get their details so we can verify ages and we're capturing evidence for the police because we want the police to come in and do an operation, do a raid in that those places to get the kids free and to get the trafficker locked up. And as we're talking um, to these girls, one of the girls in particular kept mumbling under her breath the words Changlua. And she kept saying it, Changlua, Changlua. And obviously, you know, in our conversations, she's thinking that we are there um, for, for not good reasons. We're there because we are men, uh, you know, that we were men there on in Thailand on business. And that particular night, our wives were back at the ho- hotel, but they were going home the next night and, and um, we were coming back the next night. That, now, the next night, we were planning to come back with the police and we were going to get their freedom, uh, uh, extract their freedom that night. But that first night we're there and, and she just kept mumbling under her breath, Changlua, Changlua. I'm like, what are you trying to say? And she was like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to say anything. She really didn't want to tell us. But, you know, these kids have learned to be compliant. This particular girl is only 14 or 15 and she's learned to say yes and, and learned to do whatever the customer wants her to do. And so we got her to speak the words Changlua into our phone so that we could get it to translate. And as she spoke the words Chongua into our phone, it translated that she was saying, I'm scared. This young girl kept saying, I'm scared. She was scared of what the Falun, the Westerners, what the, the Falun's were going to do to her later on that night. And she was petrified of what she might be subjected to. Because again, no young child like that, no teenager, 
a girl that is the same age as my eldest should ever have to contemplate having to do. And the great thing about that particular girl, um, she is now free. We got her freedom. We got her trafficker arrested. We got the mama-san, the lady who was managing all the girls in that brothel, arrested. And she is now in a place of freedom, and she can start thinking about what her tomorrow is going to look like. And that's what we're about. We're about saying to kids, you don't have to be scared because you shouldn't have to be afraid. No child should ever have to be afraid. And we work hard to ensure the freedom of these kids that we're finding the most dire and desperate situations. Sorry for the interruption. This is Ian Westmoreland, the founder of Kintsugi Heroes, and thank you for listening to this story from one of our amazing heroes. Our mission is for these stories to provide hope and inspiration to people experiencing life challenges and to also educate the broader community on how best to provide support. If you would like to help us to continue to produce more hero stories and cover more adversity themes, we would welcome all donations. These can be made via our website, kitsukiheroes.com.au. The donate function is at the bottom of the homepage. We'd also welcome any feedback. You can email me direct using ian at kintsugiheroes.com.au. Now let's get back to the story. Wow. Um, I'm processing very fast here, Paul. Yeah. Because I didn't know what you were going to talk about. <clears throat> um, so many, so many visuals in my mind as you've told this very eloquent and detailed story. And I'm sure this is going to impact everyone who hears this story in different ways. You know, I have my own, uh, story of being in Thailand and, uh, innocently with my friends and seeing a Western man and a little Thai girl at a bar. And we were, my, my friends were saying later after meeting this little girl, do you think she's there selling herself? She must be. How old do you think she is? And I think we figured out she would have been about 12 or 13. Wow. And um, I was 19 at the time, you know, and for wow. me to see this and it was, it was, it made me feel ill. Actually, mm. and yeah. um, we we wanted to, we asked her to play dominoes with us, and you know we befriended her, mm. and we wanted to see yeah. her the next day. And she said, "Only if I'm not working," uh, you know, or something like that. So anyway, it, it it brought back some of those memories for me. Um, and it's 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 so ah, it's so heartbreaking, heartbreaking to hear all of this. Do, which countries are you working in? Predominantly, yeah, we work in ten countries around the world now. So we're in Thailand, uh, Philippines, Cambodia, Nepal. Um, we're in Uganda, Kenya, Zimbabwe, Dominican Republic, and then there's a couple of other countries that we don't talk about for security reasons um, and, and persecution, and, and just for the risk in those countries. So, um, you know, in, in Asia, we tend to be working on uh, raids where we're doing that with the police to to get children out of bars and brothels and and that's that's sometimes it's bars and brothels that the locals go to and at other times it's bars and brothels that westerners go to i mean it's interesting you talk about thailand it's estimated there's 200,000 aussie men that go to thailand for sex every year on sex holidays 
And there are a lot of children. Literally, I've, I've only come back from Thailand this week. And uh, I was up there again last weekend on an operation. And, you know, I had a 14 and 15 year old in massage parlors that um, we are, I, I believe tonight there'll be a raid in that um, particular massage parlor with the police um, to get those kids out. Um, in Nepal, we work, um, we've got 24 border stations and we find a lot of kids being trafficked across the Nepal border. Uh, into a, a large country, um, which we don't talk about publicly, but um, uh, you know, last year we rescued over 900 children being trafficked across that border. In Africa, we tend to find kids are being exploited to sex just to eat. And I met a girl in January in Zimbabwe who is selling herself just so she can earn 30 cents to have breakfast. And that's her reality. And so we're finding so many children in, in slum communities that are being exploited for that. Um, but again, I want to make sure that your listeners don't, you know, aren't hamstrung by the gravity of the situation because we're in the business of providing freedom and we're in the pr- business of saying, one, we've got to raise awareness in Australia like, to, to say people that are traveling overseas, that you're being an ethical tourist, that um if you're going into places and you're looking around and thinking, oh, they look really young, I can guarantee you they probably are. And it's not their choice to be there, that there will be people behind the scenes, even children begging. You know, often if you've traveled overseas and you've seen people, uh, children begging, often there is a trafficker behind that child somewhere. Um, and so I encourage people, please don't ever give money to the beggars on the street when you're overseas, because often that child is being exploited. Um, that child has often been harmed. If you've ever seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire, that is very true. It's a very true representation of what happens to children. Um, but you know what? As an organization, we're about providing hope. We're about providing hope for Aussies to say, we can do something about it. We can be challenging people around their internet behavior and what websites they're going on to because a lot of children are being exploited online. And we're working really hard um, with law enforcement and other places to ensure we're prosecuting people that are watching material online that is involving children and also those that are uh, perpetrating that abuse as well because there is a lot of that and we need to raise a lot of awareness in Australia around that. But also then Aussies love to travel and Aussies love to go to Asia and I think a lot of times people go and and you've not, maybe they've just not even thought about, you know, that that could be a child and that child's being exploited. And we're really wanting to raise awareness of that as well to say we need to make sure that when we're traveling overseas, our actions are not fueling child exploitation in any senses, whether it be sex, whether it be um, labor trafficking, whether it be begging, um, all that sort of stuff. But also we've got a solution that we can offer people. And you know, I want to invite your listeners, if, if they want to help support the rescue of a child, on average it costs us $1,800 to rescue a child. And we would love to be inviting your listeners to be part of the solution and joining us as one of our rescue partners to help us rescue children. And, and you can do that at our website, destinyrescue.org. Um, you can sign up to become a rescue partner and really help us plug the gaps and make sure that children can be free to live a life of freedom, a life in all its fullness, um, and to flourish in the situation that they're in. Thank you, Paul. And- it's such a, a oh, it just 
there's so many emotions going on inside me right yeah. now. So trying to find the right words to, to put, come, pull all together and respond eloquently is, is a little bit difficult. Um, it's an, it, it, it's, it's a humanitarian cause and it's something that I think you, it doesn't matter where these children are. We are all, they're, they're children of the earth. They're children of this world, you know, and I feel that it's always our, human responsibility to help our fellow man. It doesn't matter what side of the border or what colour their skin is. Uh, that doesn't matter. Uh, I, I've got a question around, uh, by the way, I just want to point out, you, you guys are kind of like an octopus. You've got all these tentacles because you're actually touching. There's so many elements to this problem, isn't it? And the solution, there's so many parts to it. I just want to acknowledge how intricate and detailed this is, not just about rescuing one child or 10 ch children in a raid. Mm. there's all the implications there's the relationship with the local police and then there's what happens to the child and there's the family so my my thoughts are around what about the family let's say it's a younger child where the family have i'm assuming there's the family allowed it to happen or or uh, or if they oh. kind of lost lost connection with their child because their child has gone off and living in this D there's multiple different ways a child gets uh, exploit in the first first place. I don't believe, um, you know, genuinely don't believe that any family ever chooses that life for their child. Um, and, you know, poverty often robs you of choice. And, you know, I think sometimes if you're a family and you are absolutely poor, you've got no food, you're trying to put one meal a day in front of your children, and the only option you've got to get that money is for your daughter to go out and do that, or your son, um, because we rescue boys as well. I don't know that that's really choice, but I would say most of the time, the majority of cases, children are trooped, families are trooped, they're kidnapped. Um, you know, we've met, uh, I met a boy last year in Thailand who went to the internet cafe as a 14 year old, him and his friend went to their inter local internet cafe to play video games and they were kidnapped in the internet cafe. And spent three months uh, having have, being forced to have sex with men, and so you know his wasn't choice. He was kidnapped. It was like Madeleine McCann. It was like you know I guess Daniel Morecambe that a lot of our listeners here would be familiar with. You know, and, and sometimes it's a trafficker will come into the village and they'll take the first child and they'll say, "Hey, we'll get them and, and we'll take them," and they might end up working, you know, at at the Hilton or working at the at, a, at the Novotel or the, you know, a, a hotel or whatever in Bangkok or in, in Phnom Penh or, or wherever it might be. And for that child, yeah, the social proof is there. It's true. They, they're sending money back home. And so then the trafficker comes back and takes the next 10 because, oh, I've got another 10 op openings. I can get the next 10 a job. And, and they are the ones that then disappear in, into the, the underworld. And, yeah, it's not always a family's choice, but then it's about working with those families to provide education. Um, to, to educate them around the signs of human trafficking, but then also to provide an economic solution. And that could be a train-on-the-job program. It could be helping start a small business. It could be sending someone to school. Um, we've got to meet the economic needs of families if we're going to break that cycle of abuse and, and human trafficking. You know, and that's, that's where our, our, um, what we do afterwards post-rescue is, is working in a lot of those spaces, working on the emotional trauma and the, the physical trauma, the health, you know, the health needs of the child, but then also dealing with, you know, all their psychosocial support needs and, and 
getting that back on, uh, running for them and then getting them jobs so that they can survive and thrive in, in the environment that they're in. Absolutely. Hence my, my description of you guys being like an octopus. You've got all these, there's all these parts to what you're doing and what you have to do to actually create the solution. And my, and my thoughts were going back to that economic problem because that's effectively the cause of this in the first place, this poverty, this economic problem. So if it's the family that needs the money, yeah, how do you empower them? How do you get them to that place where they can be self-sufficient or at least be supported? And I would think that in a country as rich as Australia, yeah, there would be people or organisations able to support and, and provide that. And obviously you guys have programs, but um, I hope you've got enough to fulfil that, that, that piece of the jigsaw. Um, and if not, then let us know. And, and you know, I'd open, be, be open here and just share what is it el- what else do you need if there are other things other than money? Look, the, the biggest thing for us is generally money rather than goods. Because one of the, you know, one of the challenges you have often in the developing world, um, particularly, and, you know, you see it even after tsunamis and earthquakes and, and everything where we pack up shipping containers of goods from Australia to send overseas. There's a couple of challenges with that from a development point of view. One, um, the cost of getting those goods overseas is often extra- extraordinary and incredibly expensive. Um, shipping companies aren't cheap to use. But secondly, you're often robbing local businesses from business. And I'm, you know, from all of my work in the developing world and, and seeing communities thrive, as as hollow and as you know, kind of as as um, blunt as it sounds, often it is the money is actually more valuable than the goods because I know sometimes we can feel better ourselves that oh I got to donate some clothes or I got to donate some shoes and and I that found felt more tangible for me. What we're better to do is to go and the money that you would have spent on those pair of shoes, let us go and buy those shoes in that local community so that we're giving someone a job in that community and we're not. And I remember um, years ago, um, I was in, in one of my roles, we were offered the opportunity to give the children, and actually across the globe, it was about a million children, a pair of shoes. But there were going to be a pair of shoes that were manufactured in the same factory in one place globally and then distributed around the world to these million kids. And as generous as that was, we actually said no to it. Because we knew that if we had have said yes to taking a million pair of shoes, it would have taken away the the livelihood of thousands of families around the world that sell shoes in those communities to kids. And and that's where I think, you know, from a charity point of view, the cost for us to get a thousand dollars overseas um is actually really low. We we pay some foreign currency exchange. Um, cost on that, but it's actually really low for us to transfer that money overseas. Whereas if you're sending a pair of shoes overseas, you've then got to raise money to transport those pe- that pair of shoes and to get if you get where I'm coming from. So, and I think that's something sometimes I think as as individuals, and I get because I talk to people all the time that are, they really want to help and do something, and they feel like I want to do more than just give money. But actually, what I realize in the work that we do, we've got highly trained rescue agents that go and do rescues day in day out. And our biggest limiting factor is that we could double the number of rescues tomorrow, actually, if we had the finances to do it. 
And so as simple as it sounds, it's actually the dollars that prevent us from, because the traffickers that we find that we're dealing with, they're not short on money. Um, they're not short on getting money from people wanting to come and buy sex and whatnot. What we need to be able to do is to to have our agents um, doing more raids and doing more rescues and more operations, working more with the police. You know, in, in Thailand, we uh, one of the groups, one of the partners that we work with, they run a hotline and we get to rescue about 2% of the leads that they are able to generate. So, you know, the resourcing to do the rescues out of the leads that are generated, we're only touching about 2% of what they're generating. We could have a much, much bigger impact. And I know it can feel like, yep, just another charity asking for money, but that's literally for us. We, we're not short of opportunity to change kids' lives. Um, we're just limited by the resourcing to do that. So, uh, yeah, totally understand, and it makes so much sense. You know that local impact. You know on that the ripple effect on the dollar spend mm. um, around those communities. It needs to be in that community. Totally understand that. Um, how many other organisations are there doing what you're doing? Yeah, look, um, direct rescues. There's there's very few. There are a lot of organizations and doing some incredible work, but there's a lot of organizations in the human trafficking space that do a lot of awareness raising, prevention sort of work. Um, they do a lot of education through schools and stuff. But I guess the thing that we do as Destiny Rescue, which probably sets us apart from most organizations in this space, is that we are doing direct rescues in bars and brothels and massage parlors and communities where children are being trafficked. We are, you know, really going uh, to where the victims are at and getting them out of that space. And there's there aren't a lot of organisations like us because it's hard work. It's it's um, again, I don't want to take away like the the awareness raising and prevention is incredibly important, and we need organisations that are raising awareness because we would prefer not to be having to rescue. But from a from a direct point of rescue, going into these places, there's very few because it's. It's not an easy job. It's 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 confronting. It's in your face. It's often dangerous. It's risky. But we always put ourselves in the shoes of the kids that we're trying to rescue. And like, well, if we're not coming here to rescue tonight, who is? That's not a place for a child to be. A child shouldn't be in that place. And and we often think, if it was our kids, if it was your kid, what would you want us to do? And yeah, so. You know, we, we, to be honest, we need more organizations like Destiny Rescue, but at the same time, we've got a model that is really effective, that is working. We've built it over 21 years as an organization, um, and we've got a, a, a pretty high success rate of being able to get kids out, get them free. Um, we do it fairly cheaply, and in, in, to be honest, like it's, as I said earlier, it's only $1,800 on average, to rescue a child, and that and that also keeps them free as well. So that in that uh, helps with their aftercare needs and um, vocational skills training and, and whatnot. And that's often can in some countries will be supplement with other other programs that we can get them into. Um, but it's actually quite tangible for people to be able to easily rescue a child every year. Just so so brilliant what you're doing, and I love the sound of you know the the operation like uh, and. Like you said, it's great that there are other organisations doing the awareness and the education. Everyone plays a part and you guys are obviously brilliant at what you do. You've got a model that's scalable, that works. 
You just need more money investment to help um, do more rescues. So that is a call out, obviously, to the listeners. If, if this moves you, if it's important to you, which it should be, definitely uh, check out the website and donate. Um, I've got, I can see the time and we've, we've gone on for, for a little bit past our, the, the, the clock went off, but I've just loved this. It's just such an, a, an important thing that you do. And I can see the passion and the joy in your voice and feel it, you know, when you talk about what you're doing. And it is just, you can't get more real than this, I guess, life's work when you are actually tangibly changing people's lives and sometimes it's life or death and I get that too and and um, being able to turn around a child's life early on enough that they actually get a chance at living and be able to choose their own destiny I you can't get more impactful than that it's just so powerful um Paul how has this shaped you as a father or has it impacted you as a parent yeah oh look it's it's incredibly shaping as a parent i i've got two boys and we do some foster care too so uh we've got you know often i've got girls young girls in our family as well and and i just i look at them and i look at their innocence i look at their their potential and i'm like every child deserves a chance every child deserves to be a child, to have a childhood, every child deserves to have opportunity. I think you know, with my boys, I spend a lot of time trying to educate them so that you know, in child-appropriate ways, so that they know how to keep themselves safe, but also how they become responsible adults as they grow up. That they would also give back to society and not just take from society. I want to be able to raise up a generation of of kids that give back to the world, that make a difference in the world that they live in, that don't just exist for themselves, that learn how to serve their community, that learn how to live a life that isn't just about themselves. And, and I mean, to be honest, when I think about what brings me, what energizes me the most, it's when I'm thinking about other people. You know, when I spend time thinking about myself, and I see that even with my kids, when they're just always about themselves, they're just selfish, you know, whereas I think when we think about other people, our life actually becomes bigger and better and our life counts for more and, and you've got more meaning in your life. And, and that's, I guess, you know, the impact I want to have on my kids that, that they get to really see that they've got an, an opportunity to do something significant in the world. Uh, not going to be easy. Um, it never is easy, but all the worthwhile things in the world um, uh, they're worth the effort that it takes to do them. Totally agree, and and never you know forget the power of that ripple effect. And if you're bringing up your boys that way to be givers and to make it a difference, and not always take, 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 and what's in it for me, it's it, you know that will ripple effect out and impact others and indirectly and directly. And that is the world that you know we we want to create. And I feel the same way. And I know that that's why. A lot of the people come onto this show and share their stories because they want to give back. They want people to feel better and be inspired to actually, you know, go out and help others. That's why we're doing this. That's obviously why you do what you do. Um, it's such a worthy pursuit. Of, and I just want to honor you and thank you for the work that you do oh, and all you. the people that you work with. It's just beautiful. 
Um, I've just absolutely loved every second of this conversation. I, I always ask my guests a question at the end, and I'm not sure how relevant this one will be, but I'll ask it anyway. And that is this. If there's anyone who can, maybe who knows somebody or who is uh, somehow in touch with young people or can see that they are at risk or in a vulnerable situation, they can resonate with what you've shared, what would you like to say to them? Yeah, I think, you know, if you know of people that are at risk, please reach out. There are lots of organisations that are helping children, even here in Australia. There are people trafficked into Australia. And so you can uh, reach out to, you know, the different agencies, um, Beyond Blue, Lifeline. Um, there are, you know, quite a number of different organisations that you can reach out to. I think um, if you know of friends or colleagues or people in your life that are regularly visiting uh, places that are probably not the best, I would encourage you to have the tough conversation to go, hey, I heard this podcast the other day and they were talking about children being trafficked into bars and brothels and massage parlors in Asia. Um, what do you see when you're there? And just ask that question. You don't have to be confrontational about it. Um, but also I think just to even, you know, to challenge yourself, be part of the solution. And I think every single one of us can be part of a solution for someone else. And, and, and even that, when you've got challenging things to overcome, and particularly I think, you know, these days where we've got a lot of mental health issues and people um, are dealing with different challenges, sometimes putting other people at the centre is some of the best medicine I think you can take because you, like you triumph because somebody else triumphs. And, and I, I encourage your listeners to get involved in being the solution for other people. Because uh, I really believe we can change the world that we live in if we all play the role that we can play. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. I appreciate you, Paul. I appreciate what you've brought to this conversation and raising this awareness and sharing everything with us today. It's been an honour, a privilege, and, you know, thank you. Yeah. No, thank you so much for having me. And and again, if people do want to support, destinyrescue.org is our website and you can go and sign up to be a rescue partner. We'd love to invite your listeners to do that and, and just thank you in advance for making the difference for the Anitas of the world. We really appreciate it. You are very welcome. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below and join us next week for our next Heroes story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way. Only when it's broken Only when you're broken Only when